All right, take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 77. We are in a series that we're calling Smoke from a Fire, and that title comes from a um, kind of a, an analogy that Augustine used years and years ago, hundreds of years ago, when he said that the emotions in our lives, the worries, the concerns, the things that make us upset, the things that make us angry, the things that make us worry, the things that make us despair, that the emotions in our lives are like smoke from a fire. They indicate something bad is happening. Something has gone wrong and they try to show us here's how you can deal with that. We're looking through this series and asking the question, how can we look at those, understand what's going on, and then address what's happening? So last week we talked about an emotion that's common in this particular time and the state that we're in in 2020, which was confusion. Like, what do you do when you're confused? What do you do when you can't really figure out what's happening or there's lots of information and none of it makes sense? Today we're going to talk about another emotion that is just as prevalent or more so in the current climate in which we find ourselves. And that is the emotion of depression. Just as confusion is prevalent in our culture, so is sadness and despair and depression. I just did this morning a quick Google search for COVID depression and the news items that came up. There were thousands of them, but the first five included depression symptoms three times what they are outside of COVID during the current pandemic. 25% of people are experiencing COVID depression. Rates doubling, tripling. As it lingers on, the reality is people are becoming more and more distraught. I want to say real clearly from the very beginning that depression, like all of the emotions that we're going to cover, but especially for this one, I wanted to point this out, is a complex emotion. And one of the things that we need to understand is that there is really like a spectrum that at some point we all find ourselves on a, a, a graph, if you will, from being discouraged all the way to depressed. And there's lots of shades in between that. I also want to make mention that there are lots of factors that bring those things into our lives. There are physical and biological factors. There are psychological factors, social factors, spiritual factors. And in this series, I am focusing on the spiritual factors and saying that there is a spiritual component to the emotions that surface in our lives. Now, I'm not saying it's the only contributor to the emotions in our lives, and I'm not even saying it may, that it's the primary contributor always, but it is a contributor. And the physical and the emotional, the psychological and the spiritual all work together to bring those emotions into focus. And so what happens psychologically affects us spiritually, what happens spiritually affects us physically, what affects us physically affects us socially, and you can see how they all interplay. Quick example of that. Anyone here ever noticed how unspiritual you can get when you haven't had enough food or sleep? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Some of you are like, I had not had enough sleep, I don't want to comment, all right? Those, I don't know if you uh, know what I'm talking about, the, the Snickers commercials that have been out for the last couple of years where 
people are really mad or angry and they're different or whatever, and then they give them a Snickers and everything's okay. Well, the truth is that being hangry is a problem, right? And we can talk about the spiritual issue that we ought to be able to handle those cords of emotions better. And there is a spiritual issue to why am I angry? What is really bothering me? Dig deep, deep down. But they're triggered or exacerbated by a physical state that I'm hungry or I'm tired or I'm overwrought with just stuff that is happening in my life. And we should pray for more patience. We should pray for a calmer disposition, but we should also eat a Snickers bar, right? Like, we handle all of those places. And so when I'm talking about depression today, I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying depression and being hungry are the same either. What I am going to say is that I'm going to talk today about the spiritual side of depression and give some biblical ideas for working through it. I also realize that for some listening here in the service or at home, that what I have to say, you may need more help than what I'm going to offer in a 30-minute sermon. That I don't have any idea that for all of us in this room that I can give you three simple steps and at the end of this, you'll be fine. Now, some people, because of multiple things in their lives, may need stronger help. And I'm just going to say from the beginning, and I'll try to say this again at the end, if that's you, then I would be glad to have a conversation with you and point you in the direction of someone who can help you work through all of those other factors as well. And so as we begin to talk about depression or sadness or discouragement or despair, we realize that oftentimes it comes from changes in our lives. A relationship ends or we're in a marriage that doesn't seem to be going anywhere and it's just not getting any better. Or we've been betrayed by a spouse or a friend or a co-worker or we've been passed over for a promotion or we didn't make the team or we, we've been distanced from a group that we're always a part of. There's chronic illness in our lives or pain or something that is constantly there. There's financial pressures and things change quickly and we've lost a job or we've lost insurance or we've lost the capability to do that we don't know where we're going to find something else or perhaps there's a familiar sin in our lives that we just can't get rid of and we're in it and we see how bad it is now and then we look to the future and we think and i don't know how it's going to get any better now here's the thing that's comforting for us from scripture is that depression is not an emotion that is unfamiliar in Scripture. A Christian counselor who works in this area particularly says that depression is as old as human history, and the Bible has many examples of people struggling with despondency and despair. In his depression and fatigue, Elijah asked for his life to be taken. Jonah felt deeply despondent after God did not destroy Nineveh. Jeremiah regretted the day he was born. Job's wife advised him to curse God and die in the midst of suffering and pain. Even in the history of the church, Martin Luther and John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon and J.B. Phillips struggled with depression, as did political leaders like Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. Depression is no respecter of persons. It has been called the common cold of emotional disorders, and it appears to be on the rise. 
In the United States, it is one of the most prevalent and serious mental disorders affecting 20% of the population at some time in their lives. And so here's what I want to talk about today. What do we do when we feel that discouragement, disappointment, despair, depression sinking in? If all those studies are true out there, almost all of us in this room, all of every one of you listening online during the last six months have at least experienced something on that gradient at the beginning of some sort of discouragement or disappointment or despair as we've walked through six months now of a pandemic in our land. And so in Psalm 77, we're going to read about someone else who was despondent, who was discouraged, and perhaps even depressed. And we're going to ask the question, what do we take from this particular psalm? Psalm 77, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read the whole psalm together, and then we're going to come back and talk about some things that we can pull out of that. Psalm 77 says, For the choir director, according to Jedutha of Asaph, a psalm. Verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God. I groan. I meditate. My spirit becomes weak. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night I remember my music. I meditate in my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show his favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at the end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Selah. So I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I reflect on all that you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is holy. What good, what God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples with power. You redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph Selah. The water saw you, God. The water saw you. It trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea and your paths through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 77 is this beautiful picture of moving from one place in life, one understanding of life to another. In fact, what you see here is a movement from lamentation to reflection to rejoicing. Psalm 77 shows someone who starts in the beginning in a despair, in a depressed state, and may not end up completely fine, but has moved along that spectrum into a place where they are now reflecting on the goodness of God and rejoicing in who He is. And so as we look at this psalm, we just look at the example that Asaph sets for us. 
And the first thing that I see in the psalm, the first thing that needs to happen when we find ourselves in that hole, in that darkness, in that state of despair, in that state of depression, in that state of discouragement, the first thing spiritually that needs to happen is we need to cry out to God. Now, this is written by Asaph, who was the choir director, one of David's key men, a godly man. And we know from Scripture that he was a man who wrote and sung and tried to live his life for the Lord. But we also know from this psalm in particular that he had some points in his life of deep despair and of deep concern. In fact, some people have called this a psalm of lament. And that word's a word that we don't use in our vocabulary a whole lot, like I am lamenting. We kind of know what it means. But in this passage, it means a cry of desperation to God. In the original language, that first line is repeated twice. I cry aloud to the God. I cry aloud to God. And when they did that in poetic devices of the Hebrew language, what they're showing is the desperation in his voice. It is like the thing when you say something and it's either profound or it's from the depths of your soul and you can't think of the next thing to say, so you just repeat it again. Like that's what's happening here. He feels distance from the Lord. We don't know exactly what the experience is, what the moment is, what the, what the surrounding his life is happening in this moment. We don't understand what's going on there. But we know it is at the point that he feels so distant from the Lord, he desires a renewal of the communion with God, and he cannot find rest. I mean, he says, I cry out to the Lord, and the Lord will hear me. I'm going to cry. What that really means is, I'm going to wail and cry until the Lord responds. It tells us at the end of verse 2 that he's refused to be comforted. What he's saying is, I want answers, and I can't find comfort until I get them. Look at verse 3. I think of God. I groan. I meditate. And my spirit becomes weak. He asks God some hard questions. In verses 7 through 9, he is saying, Will you reject us forever? Has your faithful love ended? Has God forgotten us? Here's what we see in Scripture, and it's important for us to understand. God is not put off by your expression of honest, heartfelt emotion. Like God is not taken aback when you come out and you say something hard that you're truly feeling at the depth of your soul. God is not like, whoa, I didn't know that was going on. He knows. And he's not intimidated by it. I mean, just think about how ridiculous that sounds for us to intimidate God in any way. And so suppressing your feelings in your time with God is unhelpful and unproductive. He already knows how you feel. So let me just ask you a quick question, okay? Just think through this for a moment. If God already knows how you feel, what is the purpose in saying to Him how you feel? Well, the first thing is it just allows him to know you're being honest with him. And secondly, it's for you. There is something cathartic about saying it to the Lord. Now, one of the things we have to overcome is this idea in society or within the church that real Christians don't ever feel this despondent. 
Now, this didn't come up in Christianity this week. It came up in our culture this week. I don't know if you know this or not, but NFL football starts, well, it started Thursday, but in fullness today. Teams are all playing. One of the big stories of the offseason has been the Dallas Cowboys quarterback because one of the big stories of the offseason is always the Dallas Cowboys quarterback. But this year he doesn't have a contract. And earlier in the year, one of his family members, of his brother, I believe, committed suicide. And in an interview this week, the Dallas Cowboys quarterback admitted that before that and after that and at other points in his life, he had faced and gone through darkness and depression and despair. And one of the sports commentators on TV kind of dismissed the interview and said, he's going to learn to be a leader of men and not let all that stuff get out. Now, fortunately, society kind of came out and said that's an inappropriate response. But it was expressing the underlying feeling of a lot of people. Christians throughout history have struggled. I mentioned some names earlier, and some of you may or may not know. One of them is Charles Spurgeon, who's considered to be outside of Jesus. Paul, New Testament guys, perhaps the greatest preacher that has lived since that time. He had a church in London of around 15,000, and he told his church one Sunday, I have spent more days shut up in depression than anybody here has. Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, the guy that nailed the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg and stood at the Dead of Worms and declared, it's by grace alone that you are saved, he had severe bouts with depression to the point that his wife would remove all the knives from the house. Now, why am I saying all this? It sounds like, boy, you're really going down in a deep place because there are people living in the deep place. And one of the things as Christians we have to get to is to understand that just because we've been saved, praise be to God, doesn't mean that instantaneously all our emotions are saved, sanctified to the point that we never feel them again. And when it comes to the issue of depression or despair or discouragement, God already knows there's no shame in it. We need to cry out to him. We need to ask hard questions and come to Him with a spirit that's willing to listen, not with a hardness of our heart, but we cry out and lament to our Lord. I think about the Sermon on the Mount we studied and the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Remember we talked about that? Blessed are those who are willing to wail and weep at the depravity of their own sin because they don't care who sees it. They're just concerned about what's there. I would say in the same way, blessed are those who are willing to be honest and open with the Lord with what's going on in their lives and sharing it in a way that is honest with him, crying out to God. Let me also say, as believers, we both need a place, a group, we need brothers and sisters in Christ that we feel comfortable sharing those deepest thoughts with as well for support. And, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be willing to be those people for others. The first step that we see in Asaph, that we see in Scripture, is that we cry 
out to God. The second thing that we do, that Asaph does in this passage, is once we've cried out to God, then we reflect on the goodness of God. Now he does this in verse 4 through 6, and then also down in 11 through 15. But 4 through 6 he says, You have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled. I consider days of old. Years long have passed. I remember my music. I meditate in my heart. And I begin to say, the Lord's not going to reject me forever. Then you get down in verses 11 through 15, and he relates what God has done. Verse 11, I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all that you have done and meditate on your actions. Your way is holy. That there is no God like our God. You work wonders. You have revealed your strength. You have redeemed your people. When we get into that place of despondency, when we get in that place of despair or depression or discouragement, first thing we do is we're honest about it, we admit it, we tell the Lord. This is the spiritual aspect of what we're doing. But then the second thing we do is we think of all that He has done. That we look back both in Scripture and on our lives and we remember the goodness of God. Now we'll see at the end of this passage, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that he's going to reflect on specifically when God saved the Israelites from Egypt, specifically the the Passover and walking through the Red Sea and being delivered into the Promised Land. And on Wednesday nights, we've been walking through the Ten Commandments. And so I've kind of been, my mindset has been around the Passover and what's happened there in Moses' life and coming out of Egypt. And God would remind His people again and again, don't forget what I've done with you there. So the author here is saying, I remember that. I remember how good you were to us. I remember you keep your promises. I remember that what you say you will do, you will do. And I'm going to focus on that. That in the night when I'm crying out, when my hands are raised and I can't get satisfaction, I'm going to remember the songs of my youth. I'm going to remember what you have done for me. It's like having a little bit of spiritual nostalgia in your life. I don't know if you know this or not, but nostalgia is big right now. It's been big for a while, but particularly right now, the 80s is back. I don't know why it ever left. It's the greatest decade of all time. You know, an amen in the house of the Lord. Uh, all right. I got one, all right. But the idea is that people love the things that make them feel like they felt when they remember life was good. Right? So they like to reflect on and think back to the music, to the movies, to the television shows, to the stages in life. I was uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it's a it's a true crime podcast, and it's describing some things that happened later in life. But the daughter of the guy that committed the crime says she begins to talk and she talks about the smells of growing up and the, what was there, what was like when she was a kid. And her life went off the rails because of his actions. But there was still this desire to remember that time. Spiritually, when our life begins to get despondent and despair and depression comes, we have to have spiritual nostalgia about what God has done for us. And here's the thing, Asaph's talking about the Passover. We have more than Asaph ever had. We have the cross. 
We have the empty tomb. We have the ability to see that God loves us, not just to pull us out of a nation that is holding us captive. We have a God who was willing to give his one and only son to pull us out of the sin that had held us captive spiritually. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, when he does the Lord's Supper, do you remember he says, do this in remembrance of me? He says, as you go through life, as you are building this community that happens after Jesus is looking at the cross and the resurrection to come after that, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you. And it's more than just remember what I did on the cross. Remember what it says about how I feel about you. Sometimes we have to declare in our mind or physically that the Lord is good and we will trust him and his love endures forever. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. He said that used to he would get in. He wrote in this that when he would get into a place of deep depression, that there were times that he literally would have to get in a room by himself because he felt the enemy attacking him. And he would physically shout at the devil out loud. No, I have not been abandoned. My God is with me. And I don't know what it would look like for you in those moments when depression, despondency, despair comes. But maybe it's reading an old journal that you kept of when God was really moving in your life. Or looking through the photos on your phone to think back to times in your life that God has been good to you. Or writing down blessings that God has given you. Write out your testimony about how God saved you, about what God has done for you. Write a list of answered prayers. Write a list of people who love you. Call those people. Talk to those people. Engage with those people. And get up every morning in the midst of this time and look for God's goodness in your life. We need to reflect on the goodness of God. I love verse 11. I will remember the Lord's works. I'll remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all that you have done and meditate on your actions. You see, the amazing thing about our God is not just that he's great. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. It is that he is good. And that he has acted on our behalf. He did not set this world up and then just let it go and not worry about it. He has interacted with us. He has stepped into history in order to show his love and his care and his concern for us. And so in those moments when we feel like God is distant. And it may be a moment when we feel like that we have moved away from God. Or we feel God for whatever reason has moved away from us. We must always remember that he has ultimately proven his love to us by the fact that he has Died for our sins once and for all. And so we cry out to God. We reflect on the goodness of God. And then third and finally, we rejoice in the power of God. Throughout this psalm and in a couple of places, Asaph uses a particular word for God. In the Old Testament, there are multiple ways that you could refer to God. There was the personal name of God, which was Yahweh. That is the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. There was just the simple kind of name like we have that God that we, we know when I say, when I say God from the pulpit, I'm talking about God that you hear me talking about God, the father or the Trinitarian makeup of God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit. But it's also a word that's used in our culture, that general word God. And there was that word in their language, which was El. But throughout this psalm, he uses a 
combination of the word El, which was El Elyon, which meant God of gods or God most high. And he says this, uh, just this idea of the power and the, the ability of our God. Verse 16, he says, the water saw you, God. Now, honestly, the, the, uh, the, the water didn't see God. He's, he's making human characteristics of a physical object. But the point is there. The water saw you, and when it saw you, it trembled. Even the depths shook. Now you have to understand, to the Hebrew people, the area of their world that they understood the least and were scared of the most was the depths of the water. Now we've been down there now. Like we've had something, I haven't been down there, but somebody's been down there. Right? And they've got submarines that have gone down there. They've got cameras. James Cameron's done a lot of stuff looking for Titanic or whatever. And we see all kinds of weird stuff in the ocean, right? Amen? They didn't have any idea about it. And they didn't have anybody that had been to the depths and come back. And so to them, the area that they had the least control over, the area that they they could not understand at all was the depths. So when Paul talks about out in the open sea in the New Testament, that was like the worst thing they could imagine. Now, that may still be the worst thing some of you can imagine. But for them, it was the complete unknown. And it says in Scripture that God looked at the depths. The depths saw God and the depths, the things that we don't know about, the things that we're most scared of, trembled at the thought of our God. The clouds poured down water. The storm clouds thundered. Your arrows flashed back and forth. We Listen, I, I was awakened this morning by the thunderstorm that was happening in and around our house. And when you're in the midst of a thunderstorm where this picture is there, the, the arrows of lightning flashing back and forth, the whirlwind that comes and the shaking of the earth, you realize that we serve a mighty, powerful God. Now what Asaph is basically saying here is, Listen, God, this is my problem. This is what I have. This is where I'm despondent. We don't know the current situation, but something has got him that way. I will remember your goodness in the past, and I will remember that you are a mighty God that can control all things. And I will focus my perspective on that. Somebody has said that if you have a big problem, then you have a little God. But if you have a big God... Your problem becomes much smaller. The point there is that we understand that there is nothing in our lives that God cannot handle. And when we think about the bigness of our God, it allows us to bring, while they may be significant and they may be real and they may be fierce problems in our lives, we can bring them to a God that is greater. Or to think of it another way, we cannot allow our feelings and our emotions to determine our faith and understanding of God. We need to allow our faith and our understanding of God to determine our feelings and our emotions. And then the last two verses, he reminds us that there's always a way out. Verse 19 and 20, he's talking specifically about the Passover. He says, but your way went through the sea. Another way, in other words, your way went the way we would not have picked. Nobody before God did it would have stood before the sea and thought, you know what? I bet we'll just walk right through that. 
But God made a way. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now he says that even when it does not feel like there is any way out, when it looks like it can't get better, that there is a way out. Because our God is a way maker. One of the people in the Bible that I that I think about when I think about this topic in particular is Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known by some people as the weeping prophet. He was a man that preached and preached and preached and did not see any real fruit from his labor. And he wrote a book that literally is called, in our language or understanding, complaints. Lamentations, crying out to God. What I love is... That if you were to walk down right now, and I don't advise this, please don't do this. But if you were to walk down to the children's area, and my daughter was standing there, Maddie Grace Larson, and you said to her, Maddie, what is your favorite Bible verse? Without hesitation, she would start quoting it to you. And then when she got to the end where she, because all good, you know, all good Sunday school people, you got to tell the verse it's from. She would say it comes from Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. This is what Lamentations 3, verses 23 and 23 says. This is in the midst of Jeremiah literally watching the nation, the city that he loves being destroyed. And it says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now it's easy to sing, Great is your faithfulness, O God our Father. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. It's easy to sing that in the midst of good times. Amen. But it was written in the midst of the destruction and the lamenting of the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem being destroyed. And in the midst of whatever place we find ourselves in despair or despondency or depression. We cry out to the Lord and tell him what is going on in our lives. We remember the works that he has done in our lives and in the world. And then we focus on the fact that he is a great big God and we give praise to him. His mercies are new. Great is Thy faithfulness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us the courage and the ability to recognize in our lives that we need to just stop. Cry out to you, Lord, because of what's happening around us, the situations in our lives. Remember your faithfulness in the midst of it. And rejoice in your greatness. Lord, I pray if there are those that need to make decisions, either here in person or online, Lord, that you would speak and make those clear to them in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.